from the Centre for European Reform. This is the CER Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CER Podcast. My name is Beth Oppenheim and I'm a researcher at the Centre for European Reform. I'm here today with Sophia Besch, who is your usual host and a research fellow here at the CER. Hi, Sophia. Hi, this is great. And today we're going to be discussing your new policy brief, which is about defence after Brexit. So the UK is a major defence power in the EU, and some are optimistic enough to believe that security and foreign policy will be quite a promising area of the negotiations because it's there that the power is somewhat more balanced, unlike in the trade domain, which is probably why things are becoming so acrimonious. What do you think? Do you think it's British arrogance to think that the EU needs the UK in this field? <laughs> or do you think that this is one area where the UK actually has quite a strong contribution to make? And in that case, do you think that without British involvement, EU defence institutions could well see themselves becoming defunct or lacking in credibility if the EU doesn't find a way to draw the UK in after Brexit? That's a great question, a great set of questions, really. So I think you're absolutely right that this is one of the few areas where there is actually a positive sum game to be achieved here. Both sides have an interest in close cooperation. The EU does have an interest in keeping the UK involved in its missions and operations. When British politicians say that the UK delivers a huge part of European security, they're absolutely right. Despite the fact that in previous years, Britain has contributed limited numbers of personnel to CSDP missions, so to the EU's defence missions, it does remain one of the few EU member states that is capable of providing military assets that can fulfil really specialist functions, like like strategic airlift or intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance during the deployment of troops. And there is also, not to be forgotten, the UK's permanent seat on the UN Security Council, which is of value to the European Union, because many member states will actually not engage in a CSDP, Common Security and Defence Policy operation, without a UN mandate. And Britain, as a permanent member, can help shepherd EU requests through the Security Council. So those are all good reasons for the EU to want a close relationship with the UK after Brexit. But that does not mean that that's going to be easy because the EU, on the other hand, is keen to protect its decision-making autonomy on defence operations and missions. And it is developing new defence initiatives since the Brexit decision and has yet to determine the conditions for third-party involvement in these initiatives. And finally, crucially, defence industrial cooperation in particular post-Brexit will depend in part on the broader trade and economic relationship that the two parties agree on. But then I argue in my policy brief that in the end the EU should prioritize its interest to keep the UK close, not least because if the EU excludes the UK from the Union's defence infrastructure, it would not only lose British expertise and assets, but it would also potentially undermine the EU's own efforts. For example, President Macron, the French president, has launched the European Intervention Initiative to allow the UK to take part in non-NATO European operations without having to accept the administrative and bureaucratic structures that the EU asks for. And if Britain's only way to deploy with its European allies is through the European Intervention Initiative, that would potentially undermine PESCO, which is the EU's flagship program to deploy together. And similarly, if the only way to cooperate with UK defence firms on capability projects in the future would be through intergovernmental non-EU structures, then the usefulness of EU defence initiatives like the Defence Fund would be called into question. So in the end, I think that EU defence initiatives can only be credible if there is a way for the UK to participate. Okay, thank you. So it sounds pretty clear here that the UK does in fact have something to bring to the party and that the EU, it's in its interest to make that work. So 
In February, we had a big flagship speech from Theresa May at the Munich Security Conference, and she outlined quite a strong vision for close future cooperation on defence between the UK and the EU. Could you just quickly fill us in on what the UK is actually asking for? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So in her speech, May said that the UK was open to making continued contributions to EU operations or missions, but the future partnership paper on defence and security has made clear that the UK would want to be involved in the detailed operational planning and the development of the mandates as a precondition to contributing troops. And that means that it would want essentially a better deal than any of the other third countries are currently getting. It's worth noting though in this context that participation in CSDP missions and operations, even though that's often the biggest item on the agenda in Brussels, is not actually Britain's most urgent priority because the UK government is quite confident that it would be able to deploy with its European partners in a crisis, either through NATO, through a flexible coalition of the willing, or uh, through the European Intervention Initiative that I mentioned earlier. And more urgently, I think the UK government wants to find a way to participate in the EU Defence Fund, so the EU's new idea to financially incentivize European countries to work together on capability development. The UK has an interest in participating both in the research program and in the capability development program. And it's hoping, and this is what Theresa May said in her speech as well, that the EU27 will take an open and inclusive approach to British participation in capability development. What they mean by that is essentially do not let European ambitions for autonomy turn into European protectionism that shuts us out. And then thirdly, I think it's also important to mention because we've had a few articles in recent weeks about this issue that the UK also wants to be able to continue its role in the development of the Galileo program. So the EU's GPS program, space program. The UK has been a main manufacturer of Galileo satellites and wants to have a continuing right to bid for contracts managed by the space agency and participate in Galileo's secret communication program. So it doesn't sound like the UK is asking for a lot then. <laughs> I mean, it's, it seems as though the UK is, is asking for quite a privileged partnership. And this is something that the EU is known to struggle with, partly because of existing relations that it has with countries like Norway, who will be very put out, I imagine, if, if the EU suddenly starts offering the UK a much better deal after many years of wrangling and negotiations with countries like Norway, and partly because life can't look too rosy outside the EU. So how do you think that this conflict between the UK's demands for special status and the EU's understandable resentment and reluctance towards these demands can be resolved? You're absolutely right and very well put. That's the tension that the EU is currently in. That's the challenge that they're going to have to master. On the one hand, they want to ensure that there will be no security vacuum in Europe after Britain's withdrawal. They want to make sure that bilateral defence and security cooperation between the UK and member states is not put at risk to prevent Brexit from having any impact on the EU-NATO strategic partnership. On the other hand, at the same time, the EU also wants to safeguard some core principles like protecting the autonomy of its decision-making process, making sure, as you said, that life outside the EU is not as rosy as inside, and following on from that to ensure that the settlement with the UK does not disturb the defence relationship with other third countries like Norway. And Norway is such an interesting case here, because on the one hand, there is an opportunity here for them. There is an opportunity that the UK being outside elevates their own status, elevates the status of the group of outsiders, which is a bit of an odd family of nations at the moment. On the other hand, though, as you rightly pointed 
point out, they are worried that the fallout from Brexit negotiations might negatively impact their own relationship with the EU. And so I think the way to solve this problem for the UK and the EU is to go for a few or several small, flexible, individual agreements, Try not to agree an overall special relationship, which is a toxic term, I think, for the EU, and instead go for a whole range of, of smaller agreements in the defense field. So that would be an agreement that allows the UK to plug into missions and operations, an agreement with the European Defense Agency, an agreement with the European External Action Service to exchange personnel, an agreement to plug into the defense fund, an agreement to plug into research funding, an information sharing agreement. I could go on, but there's, I think, a more flexible approach in trying to find several agreements. Are there any downsides to having a more piecemeal approach than having a sort of overarching agreement? Well, it's sort of difficult to future-proof these more piecemeal approach because, as we talked about earlier, some of these initiatives are still being developed right now. And so with the UK committing to an agreement with the EU over the next year or so might not actually be what is in the interest of both parties once these initiatives have come to more fruition. Yeah, as as you've just explained, there's a lot of opportunity now before reform of the EU defence architecture with the UK leaving. Um, the UK is always being quite reluctant in terms of strengthening EU defence institutions. So there's now an opportunity for PESCO, for example, which is evolving. So as you say, that this uncertainty makes it really difficult to predict how the UK can be plugged into future EU defence policy. Uh, what, what do you think? Do you think that these changes could actually provide an interesting new opportunity for third party participation? Yeah, I think this is where it gets really interesting even outside of the Brexit negotiations, because I do think that in the sort of short to medium term, it is likely that Brexit will encourage the EU to rethink its relations with third countries. And that's what we already see happening. This is, yes, on the one hand, to ensure that the UK continues to play a part in EU emissions and operations, but also because the discussions with Britain are going to show up, I think, some of the anomalies and shortcomings in existing agreements. And the EAS, the external action service, the, the EU's diplomatic arm, has already set in motion a process to review how it engages with third countries in the defense field. Again, I think a clear challenge here for the EU is going to be to differentiate between this diverse group of third countries without overtly discriminating against any of them. So a couple of questions that are currently being discussed is, what should be the way to discriminate? Should third countries be granted access to the EU's planning processes according to their level of commitment to CSD? missions? Should it be according to their proximity to the EU's interests and values? So should it be a qualitative distinction or a quantitative distinction? And the country that I'm tiptoeing around here is, is of course Turkey, because while logically the innermost circle of third countries would be non-EU NATO countries like Turkey, that would immediately raise the political problem of the relationship with the country, which has bedeviled EU NATO cooperation for so long. And so I think we might end up with a situation where the external action service may prefer not to formalize any distinction between potential CSTP partners and instead maintain its ability to discriminate against whomever, uh, whenever. But even if the EU does not change its approach radically, that does not rule out sort of less dramatic but still useful reforms to the way that it interacts with third countries at the moment. And I outline some of them in the policy brief. Yeah, and I guess this is one of the things that's coming out of Brexit generally is that it's been a shock to the system, but in some ways might lead to a, a reconfiguration in the same way that Macron is talking about flexible integration. This might actually provide some opportunity to come out of the crisis. Yeah, absolutely. So to take it back to Brexit, just 
to wrap up, one thing we haven't really touched upon is this tension in the UK's desire to have a close relationship. And this is something we see coming up in trade all the time. It wants to have close links on the one hand, but then on the other hand, it also wants sovereignty and to take back control. And I presume that this is going to be a similar situation when it comes to defence. If, if the UK wants to be integrated with the EU, then it may well have to accept a degree of convergence with EU defence policy. Does that amount to Britain becoming essentially a rule taker and not a rule maker in the field of defence? And also, how's that going to go down with Brexiteers like Rhys Mogg, for example? So this is a, a tricky question that I sort of touched on a little bit in the policy brief because I do think it's so important to find a constructive and close defence relationship between Britain and the EU. And even if the UK and EU negotiating teams, which are very qualified and know what they're doing, succeed in designing privileged arrangements with the Defence Agency, with PESCO, with the Defence Fund. The question is going to be how to sell these arrangements to a UK domestic audience because a common theme in all post-Brexit defence deals is going to be that the UK will have to pay for access. And at a time when defence budget cuts are highly likely in Britain, will the UK's Defence Secretary want to spend political capital and actual capital to support investment in EU defence initiatives when, as you say, these are traditionally viewed with scepticism in the UK. I think that's a, that's a big question that they're going to have to face on how to communicate the deals that the UK wants to strike with the EU. So it sounds like in this area, the EU does genuinely need the UK too. And so hopefully that means that we can expect cooperation ultimately in the end. Let's just hope that the fallout from the trade talks is not so severe that it contaminates the defence arena too. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for this conversation. It was fun. Yeah, thank you very much, Sophia. Thanks for listening to the CIA podcast and thanks to Beth Oppenheim, our editor. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and follow us on Twitter, CIA underscore EU.